Let me begin by reading from Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Let me pray. Father, I ask you this morning to help me to share my heart, to get across an, an understanding about the resu- resurrection, Father, that I think is so desperately needed in our church culture today. Just help me, Father, and I pray that you'd open your scriptures to your people, to my heart as well, in Jesus' name. Amen. I just finished four grueling days of lectures Thursday morning. I started my lessons at 7 a.m. and finished at 11.30 a.m. But my day didn't stop there. Each day I'd have lunch and begin to pour over my notes for the next day. I also was adding new material, rewrote some, some of my notes, and even added two completely new lessons. So I wasn't crawling into bed until close to midnight each night. It was around 11 p.m. Wednesday night that I got a text from my son, Jeremiah. It popped up on my computer screen as I was putting some finishing touches on the next day's lesson. He just randomly asked me a question about the Beast of Revelation and the Antichrist. I responded by saying, I'm actually going to address that tomorrow morning in my class. He then asked if he could sit in on on it, that is, until I told him the start time. He said, I've been getting to bed pretty late. He's got a newborn. So he said he would pass on that. But then he sent me a screenshot of a conversation he was having with another Christian about end times. It seems to be a hot topic in these days we're living in. I looked at it and told him the errors in the man's arguments and then suggested things he could say or ask the man. That went on for a few lines back and forth until... Jeremiah said this, quote, We've rabbit-trailed into him telling me that he's that the King James Version is the only true word of God. All others are New Age perversions. When I read that, my immediate response was, Never mind, he's hopeless. Jeremiah responded, LOL, that's what I thought. Now, I was... Saying that half-joking, no one is hopeless. But I've way too many conversations in my life with those who claim that the King James Version of the Bible is the only God-ordained translation, and all the others are the devil's perversions. I know how entrenched these people get in their way of seeing things. There's a whole culture out there that sees the Bible and thus life this way. God help them. God help us all. I've talked about this recently in a message when I brought up our worldview, the lenses through which we see and therefore approach life. That's so important that I spent the first two hours this past Monday with the interns, the G42 interns in Spain. Anyway, I spent the first two hours on Monday hammering on about worldview to these students. We all approach life with a unique set of spectacles. You have yours and I have mine. 
and it affects the way we view our Bible, our world, and even ourselves, and ultimately, the way we even live our lives. I mentioned in a recent message that Lori and I were convinced many years ago that we needed to start storing food. I'm talking about 40 years ago when we were in our mid-20s. So we started canning. We started buying special buckets with lids to store hard red wheat. We learned how to make whole wheat bread sweetened with honey. We even sweetened our tea with honey. We joined a food co-op. One time we bought 100 pounds of cabbage because that's the smallest we could buy it with the food co-op. We made our own sauerkraut. There were many others around us doing the same thing. Again, there's just this whole culture out there. Our way of looking at things affects the way we live our lives. Today, people are afraid about this plague. They're looking at their world in a new way. But people are also afraid about the economy, global warming, gun control, social agendas, national debt, our leadership, and I could go on and on and on and on. That can dishearten even the most optimistic of us. I'm sure you get what I'm saying, right? Watching the news can be very discouraging. By the way, if it is, turn it off and turn to God's Word instead. Listen, don't mistake it. Your worldviews affects your attitudes and ultimately the way you live your life. It seems that most Christians I encounter have a gloomy outlook on the future. Not just the future of the United States, but even for the world. There's a reason for that. It's what we've been taught. It's why I teach what I do to the G42 interns in Spain. At the end of my lectures this week, I got some very encouraging feedback from some of the students. This went on for about 30 minutes, where they told me what this meant, this what this week rather meant to them. Here's what some of them said. It rocked my world. I used to have fear and you've given me hope. I want to get up and go change my world. I love knowing that I've changed a worldview of fear and discouragement about the future into one of hope and excitement. Now, let, let me interrupt myself here and address what you're all probably thinking. Hey, Michael, don't you know that this is Easter? I came here for an Easter message. What gives? Of course this is an Easter message. I wouldn't forget that. That's what we're here for in more ways than you think. For many years, I've been surprised that the church in general has neglected to give the resurrection its proper attention. Hey, wait, what are you saying? We give it proper attention. We take one whole day out of 365 and we celebrate Easter. But I noticed a few years back that even theology books seem to ignore the resurrection in favor of the death of Jesus. Let me give you an example of this. I have a lot of books. My collection of books over the years has grown to well over, last count, 1,500, but that was probably 10 years ago. The majority of my books are theology books. I have several of the classic sets of theology books by well-respected scholars of past ages. These are not household names, these guys, 
but are well known among theologians. But here's an example, very well respected systematic theology written by Charles Hodge. It's three volumes. In this three-volume systematic theology, Charles Hodge has four pages devoted to the resurrection of Jesus, while the cross, the death of Jesus, gets 127 pages. W.G.T. Shedd, in his systematic theology, moves straight from the cross to regeneration, never even dealing with the resurrection, so zero for him. Louis Burkhoff has four pages on the resurrection while spending 38 pages on the death of Jesus. A.H. Strong, four pages on the resurrection and 60 on the cross, the death of Jesus. The only one that has spent more than four pages on the resurrection just has 10, but then he spends 53 on the cross. I've averaged that out. Comes to 5.5 on the resurrection to 69.5 on the cross. That's, that's amazing to me. That's a 13 to 1 ratio. Yeah, I know that most churches see the resurrection as the highlight of the church calendar. But that's it. So let me explain my point this morning. I believe that there has been this shroud over the church for as long as I can remember. And it's a surprising one, really. One that you would not think would be a bad thing. Now, I need to pause here. Listen to me carefully today. I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. Because this has to do with the death of Jesus Christ. And I know what that means to us Christians. But Jesus' death has become such a prominent part of Christianity in the church. It's even infiltrated our culture, by the way. We see the symbol of the cross everywhere. There are even some old cities and towns that were laid out initially in the shape of a crucifix. People from all walks of life wear crosses around their necks or dangle them from their rearview mirrors. They hang them on their walls. They tattoo them on their bodies. The cross that points us to Jesus' death. The cross seems to be everywhere in almost every culture. Many years ago, Martin Smith of the band Delirious and Matt Redman co-wrote a song. Now, these are two of my all-time favorite worship leaders and songwriters. I love these guys. We've sung many of their songs over the years in church. But they wrote a song 25 years ago called the cross has said it all. And though I like the tune, it's very catchy, and the lyrics are pretty good, it's just another example of what I want to call a shrouded message. Now, again, let me pause. Lest I get into trouble here, let me say, without any ambiguity, without any doubt, I believe the death of Jesus Christ was essential for my redemption. I believe it was an expression of God's great love and Jesus' great sacrifice. I believe he came to give his life a ransom for all. It has often brought me to tears and still does as I think about it. It means so much to me on a very personal level. So I don't want you running off saying that Michael was minimizing the death of Jesus. 
But I do have a question for you to ponder. Let's take Jesus' disciples. They watched Jesus being taken away and eventually crucified. They experienced the death of their teacher and their friend, their mentor. And if it's true that the cross has said it all, why would they be so hopeless and sad afterward? If the cross had said it all, why were they so gloomy and forlorn? After the death of Jesus, watch them, pay attention to them. They were visionless, purposeless, blindsided, wandering, and scattered. Because to them, it was the end. We get that. Death has that feel, doesn't it? That it is the end of something. And for some, it's the end of everything. When I was preparing for one of my lectures this past week, I was listening to a song on YouTube that I wanted to reference. As I was listening to the song, I glanced at the first comment below the video, and this is what I read. Quote, The end of my world was December 16, 2012, when my husband of 24 years died. Death has that feel. That got me to thinking. If we as the church have a culture of the cross, I'll call it a death culture, what kind of life will we live? But if we have a culture of the resurrection, I'll call that a life culture, how do you suppose that worldview will cause us to live? So here's what occurred to me. I want to make some contrasts for you today and hopefully turn us into a death-grateful but a resurrection-living people. It matters what we emphasize. It will affect the way we live. I want to give you a before and after look at the disciples. For the two or three days that the disciples lived with the death of Jesus enshrouding them, they were gloomy and sad and without hope. When Jesus met the two men on the road to Emmaus, when he questioned them about their mood, well, here's what they said. Luke 24, verse 17. And Jesus said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Listen, they stood still, looking sad. And just a few verses later, in response to Jesus' question in Luke 24, 21, They said this, but we had hoped that he was the one. We had hoped. So they were sad and hopeless. Why wouldn't they be? After all, the cross or death is about the end of something. However, the resurrection is about the beginning of everything. Look at what happened. As soon as they realized it was the resurrected Lord, what did they do? They got up immediately and made their way back to Jerusalem and rejoiced with the others. Here's another point. These two men were leaving Jerusalem, most likely going back to their old mundane jobs. But I want to point out the short phrase from verse 17 again. They stood still. 
That's a good way of describing reaction to unexpected death. We, what happens, we stop dead in our tracks. This indicates the lifelessness of the culture of, de- of a death. Death stands still. Life moves forward. Listen, we're glad we're atoned for, aren't you? Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ paid for your sins through his death? I'm glad I'm atoned for. I want you to say that with me. I'm glad I'm atoned for. One more time, I'm glad I'm atoned for. But listen, resurrection is more. Don't believe me? That's what the scripture says that I began with this morning. Listen to these words again carefully this time. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life. Hear that? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life. You hear that? That's not my words. This is not my message. It's the message of the scriptures. Jesus Christ who died, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life. Did you know there would be no book of Acts without the resurrection? Which brings me to another point. Death is bad news. Resurrection is good news. Now, again, so that you won't be freaking out about what I just said, let me restate it with less shock value. Death without resurrection is bad news. So if Jesus died and he's still dead, think about this. Let me say it again. If Jesus died and he's still dead, well, Paul tells us what that would be like in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. For if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we should be pitied more than anyone. I think the King James Version says we are of all men most miserable. It reminds me of a story I heard one time. A little old lady stood up in her church one day and said, If Jesus knew what was going on in this church, he'd turn over in his grave. So for the disciples, if Jesus died and he's still in his grave, if he remains dead, think about it. Okay, I'm redeemed, but now what? What next? There's no future. Death has no future without resurrection. Death is just death. So let me tell you something you may not know. The good news. The really good news. The real good news. It's not about death, but about resurrection life. I read recently that a New Testament seminary professor every year gives his seminary students a trick assignment. He offers to give them an automatic A+. To any student who will write an essay that shows the atonement doctrine in the messages of the book of Acts. He then tells them that over the many years he's offered this, no one yet has gotten that A+. Why? Because it's just not there. The messages of the book of Acts were not about the atonement, but about the resurrection. He does this to shock his students, knowing that most of them will have assumed 
that the book of Acts is all about the cross of Jesus Christ, but it's not. I dare you, do your own study. Take the book of Acts and read it through, marking the messages of the resurrection versus the death of Jesus. You will find that the chief message of the book of Acts, a book in which thousands were saved, you'll find that it was not about atonement, but about resurrection. Folks, he's alive. Could it be that the success of the early church was based upon the fact that their worldview and therefore their message was about a future and a hope, about life and living? What do we do in our day? Think about this. What does the world see Christians do around this time, mainline denominations? Mainline denominational churches spend 40 days of fasting and serious reflection 40 days, I'll repeat that because I want to make, I want to emphasize this. They'll spend 40 days of fasting, 40 days of fasting and serious reflection leading up to one day of joyful celebrating his resurrection. Do you get it? The primary message of the church in Acts was celebrating resurrection life wherever they went, while the modern day emphasis is somber self-sacrifice. Now, that might sound more religious to do that, but it's not what the world is waiting and longing to hear and see. We have no idea what the resurrection meant to the early church. It was so important that the first day of the week was set aside from that very first resurrection Sunday as a reminder every single week throughout generations to celebrate his resurrection But today we forget that and give one Sunday to it. Now, of course, it is said to be the highlight of the church calendar, the most holy day of the church year. But it should be the highlight of every Sunday. Actually, the highlight of our life and our message. He's alive. You may not think this is any big deal, but perhaps you may not understand that for the early Christians, the first day of the week, Sunday, was their first day of work, like our Monday. But this was so important to them to renew each week with the celebration of the resurrection that they would get up early on their first work day each week to rejoice in it. But we, without consciously thinking about that, we're connected to that because every time the church meets on Sunday, we are in a long line of successive calendar weeks of re-celebrating not his death, but his newness of life. A couple of other observations real quick, and let me close with an exhortation. The death of Jesus scattered his disciples. Jesus had told them this at the last meal he had with them. You will all fall away, he said. The prophet had warned this in the Old Testament. The prophet had said, Smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. But what did resurrection do? Resurrection brought them together. I'll say that again. The death of Jesus scattered his disciples, while the resurrection brought them together. The two men on the road to Emmaus, for instance, returned to Jerusalem immediately, and and then on the day of Pentecost, 120 of them were gathered in an upper room. It brought them together. One last thought. I started making columns 
as I was preparing this message about the difference between a culture of death only versus a culture of resurrection life. On the left-hand side, I put death, and on the right-hand side, I put resurrection. With death, I saw hopelessness. Resurrection, I saw hope-filled people. Death, there was sadness. Resurrection, joy. Death, bad news. Resurrection, good news. And I finally wrote in the last row, Death, God saying no. Resurrection, God saying yes. So here's my challenge to you as I wrap this up. Put on some new lenses this morning. Start seeing life. Start living church. Start living your messages, speaking your messages with new lenses, with a new outlook. Start thinking resurrection. Start talking resurrection. Start coming to church to celebrate life and live as wide-eyed, wide-awake people. Live the resurrection. Amen.